Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Continuing to bring our service to you. It's We're almost all back. It's been a rough road. Uh, Pastor Adrian's up in Ottawa serving the brethren there. And it's been a rough, long road for us here with the flu going through us. But we're grateful that it is almost behind us. We're just a couple of months away from Passover. It's, uh, time certainly does go by. The older we get, the quicker it goes. And we're looking forward to that in a couple of months. Toxic masculinity. It was a term that's only become recently in the news. Probably about five or six years ago it started to gain traction. But believe it or not, it was a term that was coined in the 1980s. I hadn't heard of it till the last number of few years. But it's a term that was coined in the 1980s by a psychologist by the name of Shepard Bliss. It was later put to print in a book by two sociologists in 2004. But it has started to become part of our modern vernacular in about 2013. And it started to become part of our modern vernacular because of the politically correct movement we've been talking about and that we've been seeing becoming part of our society here in the Western world in the face of underlying cultural changes that we see happening in our society. And this term toxic masculinity has become part and parcel of what has been blamed for what's wrong with the Western world. In essence, it blames the problems of our society, and I'm boiling it right down here to to the basics. It blames the problems of our society. It blames the problems of the history of modern civilization and just about everything else that is wrong with this world on men. Now, let's be honest, fellas. Let's be honest. As a group here that represents 50% of the population, approximately, we haven't done ourselves very many favors. Because as far back as recorded time goes, extending all the way up to today, whether you read biblical history, whether you read modern history, the history books, I think we can agree that the world is filled with evil men. We haven't done ourselves very many favors. It's filled with evil women too, but it is filled with evil men. Without God, we are all evil. We're all carnally minded. We're all enmity against God and desperately wicked, to pull quotes in from the Apostle Paul and the prophet Jeremiah. But is it men that are wrong, what is wrong with society today? Is, are men what is wrong with society today? This is the concept that toxic masculinity tries to convey. So much so that we now have family-friendly movies being used to address the issue. I haven't seen it. I didn't, actually didn't even see the first one. Those of you who know me know I sleep through movies. But Lego 2 is out. And I saw a write-up on Lego 2 that one reviewer says that the movie is, an ambish, is ambitious in its wide-ranging critique of toxic masculinity and aims to dismantle gender roles piece by piece. Lego 2 is all about underlying theme of pulling down and dismantling gender roles. What this is, cultural manipulation, 
in the form of family-friendly entertainment. It used to be, back when our kids were young, that you could go to a Disney movie and there was a bit of adult humor that kids wouldn't understand to at least pull adults in to make it kind of funny for us to sit through a kid's movie. Now, nothing, everything is open. Nothing is sacred. And even family-friendly entertainment have political undertones. And I heard Lego, the first movie, was a great movie. I heard it was a great movie. I didn't see it, but I heard it was great. Here, in the words of this one reviewer, it attempts to dismantle gender roles piece by piece. There's a conservative Christian commentator by the name of Ali Stuckey. You may have seen this video. I posted it locally here on our bulletin called Make Men Masculine Again. And she addresses the topic this way. She says, she asks the question, is the solution to make men less masculine and more like women? She claims that if that's our goal, this is dangerous and actually leads to more toxic masculinity. If we aim to make men less masculine, it actually increases toxic masculinity. Because, in her words, bad men don't become good when they stop being like men. Bad men stop being, bad men become good when they stop being bad. Simple, but no one's figured that out. Bad men don't become good when they stop being like men. Bad men become good when they stop being bad. The answer, she says, isn't less, mas less masculinity. The answer is better masculinity. Simple yet profound. So, is masculinity really the problem? Is this what we want to convey to our children? Is this what we want to convey to our young people? Is this what we want to convey to our future husbands, our future fathers, our future mothers and wives of the next generation and the next group of leaders of the church? What kind of men does God want us to be? To parents, men and women. To grandparents, men and women. Youth leaders, pastors. What kind of men should we be raising? What kind of men should we be raising? Eight weeks ago, Pastor Adrian took a look at a woman's place. For those of you online, I posted it on our Facebook page earlier this week as a preface to this message. And in it, he said that we need to understand the role of women because we will support Christ as his bride in the kingdom. And it's important that regardless of gender, we understand women because we, as the church, will be his bride in, in, in support of Christ. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to take a listen to it. God and Jesus Christ hold women in high esteem, and they commit critical roles for them to fulfill as part of a healthy society. And Pastor Adrian goes through that in his message. But understanding God's expectations is critical. I would like to today, in the time we have left, to build on that message and look at a man's place from God's perspective. Because that really, God's perspective, really is the only viewpoint that matters. It doesn't matter what the sociologists say. It doesn't matter what the churches say. 
it matters what the Bible says. It matters what God says about a man's place. And this understanding of man's place will help us raise godly men and godly women. So let's go to where, back to where Pastor Adrian went and studied in depth in Ephesians 5. Let's go back there as we start. And when we stick to the Bible, we shouldn't be afraid to address some of these topics like feminism and toxic masculinity. And it's a shame, and it just shows the depths that we have reached as a society that we have to talk about masculinity and we have to talk about being a woman. You would think we would have figured this out by now and we could get on to deeper, deeper things. But this world is full of nonsense, and if we don't discuss it, we, we open ourselves up to it seeping into, God, into the church, into God's people, if we don't address it. So here in Ephesians 5, Paul references, let's go down to verse 31. We won't go through it in depth as uh, we heard in the previous message by Pastor Adrian, but we're going to go down to verse 31 to start. And in talking about marriage, talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife, Paul quotes, goes right back to Genesis, and quotes from the creation account, verse 31, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I speak concerning Christ and the church. What he's done here, at this, what he, this concluding area here, if you go back in context, back to beginning of verse 22, he describes a healthy marital relationship, one of mutual love made manifest by understanding our place and meeting God's expectations in this relationship. And this expectation Then we go back to verse 22. We see the command to the commands through through verses from verses 22 through 30 to love, to cherish, to care for, and to lead. When we're looking at the man's place, we go start actually in verse 25. We see the commands to love, cherish, care for, and lead. But it actually doesn't say lead. But this is all about leading. In the home. And the reason why we know that is we go back to verse 22 where it says the wives submit to the leadership of her husband, who does not in a, tox- not in a toxic way, not a, a man doesn't lead, lead in a toxic way, but he leads in a godly way. And why is this important? Why is this important to understand the proper roles for a man and a wife? within the the, the marriage covenant. He goes on to, and we've already read it in verse 32, why it's so important, and Pastor Adrian talked about it in his message, is that this is one of the great mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And it points to the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ talked to his disciples about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And this this relationship between a man and his wife 
encompasses this mystery of Christ and the church. It helps us explain this mystery of Christ and the church. If you're not kingdom-focused, if you have bought into some of, the, some of the, the, the societal norms that we see out in this world, then this entire passage is toxic. Because from the beginning, verse 22, if, if you're not kingdom-focused, you see the word submit and all systems stop. All I see is this word submit. And many don't even like talking about it from the pulpit because we just don't want to go there. It's, it's too fragile of a conversation. What do you mean submit? And the purposes of this message isn't to go into that in detail. We've, we've already did that some weeks ago. But if you're not kingdom focused, this whole passage gets off to a toxic start because it starts with the word submit. And it's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, any of these other Greek forms. It's an imperative. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And that's all we, that's all we, seeing it from a toxic standpoint, that's all we can see. You stopped me at submit. That's all I see is the word submit. And this is where an ungodly man can become, this is where toxic masculinity can step in. Honey, read the scriptures. It says submit. In fact, Sarah called Abraham my Lord. So while you're submitting to me, please do so and call me my Lord. Because that's biblical. That's toxic masculinity. That's not what God intended here. If you're just taking it at face value. This is not what this passage is all about. It has everything to do with teaching us about the relationship between Christ and the church. This has nothing to do with my ego as a man. Or your comfortability as a woman. And our comfortability in this relationship. And is this an equal partnership? Who's in charge? Who's not in charge? This has nothing to do with this. This has everything to do with understanding the relationship between Christ and his church. That's why he finishes the passage down there in verse 32 by referencing that this is one of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Because if you're not kingdom focused, you get caught up in the wording. If you are kingdom focused, the mysteries are revealed. This isn't toxic. This, is, this opens your heart to a good relationship because this relationship is what sets the foundation for all that we do and all that we are. This has nothing to do with my ego as a man or your ego or your position as a woman, but everything to do with learning how to live God's way so that we can assume our role as first fruits alongside Christ and help bring his plan to fruition. If our role is to oversee the grafting back in of Israel as physical kings and priests, helping them oversee the teaching of the Gentiles about God's way, then we must get this right. We must get our roles right and not be influenced by this world. So again, it's a shame that we have to talk about it, but it's out there, and if we don't talk about it, they will. So let's us talk about it. And view it from the pages of scripture. What's wrong with toxic masculinity, among many, many things, is that it makes use of an error in logic called the false dichotomy. And the premise of a false dichotomy is that the argument is falsely limited to two options. In attempting to destroy godly 
patriarchy. And again, there's a word that if you're, if you're not kingdom focused, is an all-stop word too. Now I'm, now I'm, I can't listen to the rest because you use this word patriarchy. And it says, toxic masculinity that is, that male leadership is wrong and we have thousands of years of proof. We either, and here's the false dichotomy, the solution is we either let them continue to lead us to destruction or we entirely root out this concept of male leadership. That's the false dichotomy that toxic masculinity places in front of us. That there are only two options, and obviously this one is bad because we've got years and years and years of proof documented here, documented in the history books. So the only other option is this. That's a false dichotomy. There are other options. And that's what the Bible presents to us. The real answer is as old as time itself. Let's root out the evil qualities of men and replace them with the character of Christ. That's the third option. Let's root out the evil and replace it with Christ's character. That is as old as time itself. And that is the mystery for us to figure out. How do we assume and stay true to scripture, honoring the, what God expects of men, and be godly men at it. How do we figure out how to be godly leaders, godly men? Let's go back to Genesis 2 as we start to figure this out. And looking at a man's place. Genesis 2. Begin in verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Hold on. A helper? That's all I am? I'm just a helper? I thought this was an equal partnership. That's the toxic way to look at it. A kingdom-focused person would see it this way. Man is incomplete alone. He may have made man first, but he didn't make him complete. That's why he said it's not good for man to be alone. So let's not get caught up on this word helper as a placeholder and see what God is saying was, he's not good enough by himself. I need to make him a helpmate. I need to make him a partner. It is not good that man should be alone. I haven't completed the job yet. This is just the first part of the creation process. And he needs a woman to be complete. And she needs a man to be complete as well. He made each of us incomplete, but together we complete each other in the marriage covenant. But what we see here, let's go to verse 23. Verse 22. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of a man. Wow, that's really degrading. That's really degrading. Unless you see it as completing the puzzle. Completing the puzzle. That's a kingdom-focused perspective. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Separately, they are incomplete. Together, they become one flesh. But we also start to see the concept of roles. The man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So there already, from the creation account, seems to be these concept of roles. Let's go to Colossians 3. Hold your place back there. We're going to come back to Genesis real soon. But I want to address this concept that roles are important to God. Roles are very important when we understand this mystery of Christ and the church being made manifest into this mystery of man and wife. Colossians chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Roles are important. God has defined some for us. He didn't define them all. He didn't address motherhood here. He addresses it elsewhere. But this sounds toxic to today's enlightened person. Wives, submit. Husbands, love your wives. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Again, a non-kingdom-focused person would see this as toxic. But not so when you read it in context. Let's go back to verse 12. This is written in context, beginning back in verse 12, where Paul says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved... Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above the, all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection, or this word is to, for completion, this word teleos, to be complete. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's the context of defining the roles that he then goes into. Going back to Becoming holy. And we've talked many times lately about becoming holy. This here, when you go through, verse 12, verse 13, this is not bad men becoming less like men. This is bad men becoming less bad. This is putting on the character of Christ. This is addressing toxic masculinity. But not to become less masculine, but to become better men. To put on tender mercies, to put on kindness, to put on humility, to put on meekness, 
that is the the what is the, the basis for the roles that he then goes into beginning in verse 18. Let's now go back to Genesis 1. Let's start looking at some of these roles that God defines for a man. Let's go back to Genesis 1. And we see roles being defined right from creation. Amazing. We've often discussed how much of, if not all, of the Bible comes out of Genesis, expanded in the Torah, and then proceeds to be explained through the rest of the Holy Scriptures. Verse 28. Go back to verse 26. This is the, the basis for our existence, the meaning of life, so to speak. Verse 28. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we see our roles being defined. Be fruitful and multiply, and take care of the earth. Take care of my creation, and be fruitful and multiply. The first two things God told us to do. Let's now go to Genesis 3. And you may have seen it posted this week on the Armor of God website, the latest Armor of God, uh, this time by Pastor Adrian, called Eden, Another Look. Those of you here in Burlington who've heard the messages on the, the, the Genesis, we had a, a, a couple of messages, one by Deacon Jan, one by Pastor Adrian, one or two by Pastor Adrian, that goes into this topic much in much, much more depth. But he does a, a, a 28-minute or a 30-minute uh, uh, short version that he produced on the the armor of God called Eden, another look. I invite you to take a look at that. But relative, going back to what we just read in Genesis 1, let's go to verse 16 of Genesis 3. After the fall of man, God, after he deals with the serpent, now says to the woman, verse 16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. And in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. God says, guess what? Despite the changes that you've forced me to make, because I don't lie, I keep my word, your roles don't change. Be fruitful and multiply and take care of the earth. I've just thrown in some obstacles. You're now making it harder on yourselves. You could have had it easier but I haven't changed my expectations. God doesn't change his expectations. The roles that he defined from the beginning are now being augmented with being a little bit harder. You will still be required to be fruitful and multiply. That is part and parcel of my plan. But you'll do so in pain. And you still need to take care of this wonderful creation 
even though we've done a terrible job at it, you will still need to take care of the creation. But just for the privilege of eating and taking care of yourselves, you're going to have to sweat for it. You're going to have to work really hard. You have to mine your way through thorns and thistles and weeds. Interesting that we see the role of primary provider being tasked to the husband from the very beginning. To him, he said, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. To provide for your family, you will need to sweat for it. This thing that has, every week it seems like there's something new on the news. The last week or two is this Green New Deal. This Green New Deal, you may have heard of this Green New Deal in the United States. It's this new set of economic reforms put forth in the U.S. by the far left to address climate change and economic inequality. Now, floated out there, it has since been retracted, but floated out there, and they're still debating whether it was really thrown out there or not, but it was thrown out there, and someone thought of this, so it was at least thrown out there as part of the program was the idea, and I'm going to quote this, was the idea of economic security for all who are unable or unwilling to work. Economic security for those who are unable to work. Now, there's a debate whether they was really in there or not, but someone thought this up because it's at least out there. And this concept is completely anti-biblical. Economic, uh, what's the word there? Economic security for those who are unwilling to work is a concept that is completely anti-biblical and goes against God's instruction to the man. When he said, in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians 3 and see this. 2 Thessalonians 3, as we consider the various roles that make up a man's place. 2 Thessalonians 3. We'll begin in verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. They could have, and we see this in other places in Scripture, tapped into the fact that those serving God should be looked after. But in order to set an example for these people, because they're clearly, what, in my opinion, there was probably an issue they needed to be an example for. They said, listen, we will take care of ourselves. We will work to provide food for ourselves and serve God back and forth in the interim. Verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, that if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. That goes right back to Genesis 3. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 
For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but, that, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Again, we see all these characteristics of Christ coming into this. That we don't accept what is shameful, but we admonish and work with our brothers. But to this, this group, to this group of brethren, he says, have, have you not, don't you not remember what we talked to you about? That if you do not, if he will not work, neither shall he eat. It is shameful when we read this and link this up to Genesis. For the husband to turn his back on his primary role as provider. Now, each family circumstance may differ. There's every, every circumstance is different. When we talk about turning your back on primary role of provider, it's an admonition not to be idle and not to be lazy and be a busybody. Not to be unproductive, but to be productive and making an effort towards work so that you can fulfill your role as a provider. In the early stages, that might mean getting educated. And perhaps, in, in our case, I, I, I could have taken my wife up on an offer many years ago when we were first married to get educated for a different role while she worked. This was not her assuming the role of primary provider. It was us understanding in a bigger scheme the fact that some education may help me be a better provider. Now, in my immaturity, I turned her down because I needed to actually work then so I could be the primary provider. But what I'm saying is part of being a primary provider may be educating yourself. But the ultimate goal for the, the role of the man is to be the primary provider in the home. And we see that here. We link that up to Genesis 3, verse 18, where he said, in the sweat of your brow you will eat to the man. Let's go to 1 Timothy 5. Paul gets even a little more bold here in 1 Timothy 5. And we see here, this in, in context, this is all about honoring true widows, treatment of church members, and including talking to widowed women to be productive during their productive years so that when they reach a point in their lives where they can't be productive, they will have earned the opportunity to be supported by others. But that comes with, from the words of Paul here, being productive during your productive years. But all of that, talking, talking to widowed women and taking care of the widows, buried in the middle here is this truth that goes all the way back to Genesis in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. That really calls out our role as men, as primary providers. And again, your circumstances differ. What that means differs. for, But in our minds and how we 
handle our homes and our stewards of our homes, our minds must be to be the provider of our family, to be the primary provider. Of, and to, to deny that, to deny, deny that role, means we are denying our entire faith and becoming an unbeliever. That's how critical this important this is, to understand our roles. It's as equally important to understand a woman's role as it is to understand a man's role. Because here, our part in the faith hinges on us following through on this. That's our role as provider. Let's go to Proverbs 31. We'll change course here just a little bit. And look at our role as leader of the home. The role of man as leader of the home. And let's go to Proverbs 31. Why would we start in Proverbs 31? We covered this a few years ago in an infuse session. I'd like to bring this back here in light of the role of the man. But we're going to bring, begin in verse, Proverbs 31 at verse 10. Who can find a virtuous wife? We look at Proverbs 31 as the role of women and what it means to be a virtuous woman, a virtuous wife. And there's a lot that can be gleaned there too. But context, let's go back to verse 2. This question, who can find a virtuous wife? The context goes back to verse 2. And this Saul, this proverb, as we know, wasn't written to a woman. It was actually written to a man by his mom. And, well, this man wrote it based off the words that his mom taught him. King Solomon here, here referred to as King Lemuel. And she says, what, my son? And what son of my womb and what son of my vows? Do not give your strength to women, nor your ways to that which destroy kings. It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law, and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing, and wine to those who are bitter of heart, and let him drink and forget his poverty, and remember his misery no more. Open your mouth for the speechless, in the cause of all who are appointed to die. Open your mouth and judge righteously, and plead the cause of the poor and the needy. Who can find a virtuous wife? Not this guy that's mentioned in verses 2 through 7. That is a toxic man. That is a man not focused on serving, not focused on finding a wife that completes him, but is a man focused on himself. And we see this here. Giving your strength to women in ways that destroy kings. So flaunting your sexuality and, and getting involved in relationships for what you can get out of it yourself, whether that be sexual or otherwise. Getting involved in drink or to an excess, to where you have lost control, merely for self-pleasure. And forgetting the law. Perverting justice and, infl and, doing that up and, inf and inflicting that upon others in, in reference to, to leadership here. Who can find a virtuous wife who deserves a godly woman not this guy not this guy this is a toxic man who deserves a virtuous wife verse 11 
the heart of her husband safely trusts her, so he will have no lack of gain. Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. And verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Who deserves a godly, virtuous woman? A man that sees this marital relationship as a united front. One where there is full trust built between the man and the woman. Where he allows her the freedom to fulfill her godly roles. Where he is productive and respected in his circle of influence. And it doesn't need to be in the gates of the city amongst all the elders of the city. It can be in your little corner of the factory you work in with the two or three people you work with. It can be anywhere. Wherever you are, whatever circle of influence you hold, you are respected in that circle of influence. That is the type of man who deserves a godly woman. And verse 28, we read there, not only is he understands the, the trust that is put into the marriage covenant and that they fully trust each other and he's productive and respected in his circle, but he publicly builds her up. Never, ever puts her down publicly and teaches his children to do the same. And they have seen him publicly praise her. And they, in turn, call her blessed because she is blessed. This is not toxic. This is making, is making bad men better. This is a man that deserves a virtuous woman. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Again, looking at this role as being the leader of the home. And we know 1 Corinthians 13 is this parenthetical chapter. It's like in the middle of this discussion of gifts and the unity of the church. How we, as, as maturing members of the faith, we are, are gifted with service and gifted with, with, by the Holy Spirit to serve others in the ways that God has gifted us. But stuck in the middle is this passage on agape love, which is really the, 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 our ultimate goal to, to become like Christ. And in the context of all of this, we see verse 11, where Paul says, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. I put away childish things. Childish ways serve the self. Real men serve others and serve themselves last. That's what we get when we read the scriptures. Real men, better men, serve everyone else first. That's what a leader does of his family. They serve everybody else first. And whatever is left is left. And they put away childish things because childish things serve the self. Reminds me, and again, we talked about this in an infused session some time ago, of the Peter Pan syndrome that we talked about. And the inclination for young men to stay childlike, to live off their parents, to make no effort to make a career for themselves, not find a job. Some find a job but to make a career, 
whatever it is you set your hand to, that you set a career for yourselves because you have this vision of, of meeting a woman and becoming one and building a family. And that takes career plan, whatever that career is. No effort to find a career. Playing video games and living it, we, we know the, today's, today's young man and who lives at home and plays video games in the basement till all hours of the night and, and lives off of his parents. Paul here says, when I became a man, I put that stuff away. I might pull it out once in a while and have some fun. But that's not my focus. My focus is on putting away childish things and becoming a man. God says there comes a time to grow up and stop acting like a child. How are we raising our young men? How are we raising our young men? Deuteronomy 6, again, as fathers, looking at our role. We could go almost anywhere in Deuteronomy. I chose Deuteronomy 6. We could go any number of places to deal with this concept. But we're going to to look here at this this, this passage in Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now, this is the commandment, Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you, that you may observe them in the land which you are crossing over to possess, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep all his commandments all, that to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you. You, you and your son and your grandson, all the, all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God, that you may follow through on what I said back in Genesis, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God of your fathers has promised a land flowing with milk and honey. A teacher of God's ways, not just to his children, but to his grandchildren. Anyone within your your family lineage, you are the leader that is expected to lead your family. And when your son asks, let's go down to verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe against Egypt, Pharaoh and all his household. Then he brought us out from there that he might bring us to give us the land which he swore to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So not just teaching your children and your grandchildren all the days of your life, but when your son asks, this means that you, in this role as father, you are fostering your relationship as a leader. It doesn't say the son goes to the mom and that the son goes to the father and says, what does this mean? I'm hearing this stuff at church from the pulpit. What does this mean? It means fostering this relationship. There's a relationship being built as the leader of the home. And this is one of our roles as leaders of our home. When they ask something about God, 
when there is a nuclear family, now I, I understand there are all sorts of, in today's day and age, all sorts of other family units, but God's intention, God's intention was this nuclear family. And when the son comes, what does all this mean? You can teach him. You don't need to teach him necessarily. You can. About coming out of Egypt. But you can tell him, listen, I did this when I was young. And I see where you're going. And you got some options ahead of you. Let me tell you where I messed up. Let me walk you through what I did. Let's look at the Bible. And you tell me what your best option is going to be. Because you're, you're getting to be a man now. You need to make this decision. But rather than hear it from school, I want you to hear it from me. Let me tell you what I did. Here are those options ahead of me. What if I had had the Bible way back then and I could read this? What decision do you think I should have made then? This is leading your family. This is one of the roles that we must take on as men in leading our family. The window of having their inquisitive ear is short. It's remarkably short. You think it's going to be there forever, and then it's gone. All of us, they go from here to this, and they're gone. Not gone, but the amount of influence you have decreases. It disappears quickly. Part of a man's place is to lead his family to God. And we see this any countless of other times in Deuteronomy. Let's go to Joshua 24. Joshua 24. Again, looking at our role as men in leading our homes. Verse 14. In cutting into context, he gathers, back in verse 1, we see that he gathers all of Israel, all the tribes together, and sort of has a, a bit of a message for them where he sort of brings all of their history together, reminds them of their history to what has brought them to this stage. And then he says to all of Israel, Joshua does, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. This is my message to you. All that we have been through together as I come to the end of my life, And we watched, we were there with Moses. We watched Moses walk us through for 40 years, and then he died. And then we crossed over the Jordan, and we came into the promised land, and we've settled now finally in the promised land. I'm about to die. Serve him with sincerity and truth. Don't serve other gods. But if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, this this is a leader too. This is putting the truth out in front of those under your care. If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. I can't make that decision for you. If, if you think you should, if you think it's fine to do that, whether the gods of your, which your father served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, you know what? Make your decision. But as for me and my house, not me, as for me and my house, my house, we will serve the Lord. This is a godly leader. This is not some toxic ogre. 
forcing his family to follow a God that he has not already led them to, that they've never heard anything about. Listen, you're gonna, this, this is the church I go to. You're going to follow me because this is what I want. No, this is years and years and years of training and teaching. And when your son comes up to you and asks you, you're going to tell him this. And you're going to build that relationship there. And you're going to teach him this. So when it comes time to let them fly, they can fly on their own. But me and my house, as the leader, if you're in these walls, we serve the Lord. That was what Joshua was saying. 1 Kings 2. Lana read this to us earlier. David's deathbed instructions to his son who was going to take over for him the kingship. 1 Kings 2 verse 1. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged his son Solomon saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be strong therefore and prove yourself a man. If there's one thing I want from you when I leave this earth, you, my son, be a man. What does that mean? What does be a man mean? He tells us, keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. All you have to do, son, is follow God. And he has promised these promises to me. But all you have, that's all you have to do. You want these promises? You want to excel? You want to be a man? Do all these things. And you have no, you have no problems. That's what being a man is to God. That's, that's what being a man is. Let's go back to Ephesians 6. We looked at this passage here, beginning of verse 22 of chapter 5. But this whole marriage family discussion here extends into the beginning of chapter 6. And as far as leading your home, he tells us as fathers in verse 4. And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. That is part of our role, too. Not to, not to engage them to anger, not to poke all their buttons to the point of anger. Not, this has nothing to do with teasing. This has to do with provoking them to anger, to bringing out the anger where they want no relationship with God or with you. But bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Whether or not they commit to Christ in this life or not, our role is to train them in God's way. Train them in God. And this all is part and parcel of this mystery that is Christ in the church. This mystery of a man and a woman coming together and then being fruitful and multiplying. 
and producing children. This is a, the mystery of how God is, uh, God is going to repopulate this earth and share his glory with man and all those things that the, the holy days and that, that represent that we have been learning and we continue to learn. But not everyone is in a place in life where he can be an influence on his physical family. Not everyone is in a position to be in a nuclear family with a wife, with kids or grown children and grandchildren. Not everyone is in this position. Everyone has their own different lot in life. You may have kids that they've chosen not to follow God. You may have come to the faith after your children had grown up and left home and not had a godly influence on them because you didn't know when you had that window of opportunity. You may not have been married at all, so you may not have had an opportunity to have a wife and have a family. You may be divorced and came to the faith after that part of your life. Any number of situations that define who we are. Does this relieve you of your obligations as a man of God? Does this relieve you of those obligations? Let's go to Titus chapter 1. We've been here recently before in the discussing holiness, but let's go there again. But before we go to Titus 2, let's go to Titus 1. And again, see that there is a proper order of things as defined by God. Titus 1 verse 5 where he sets the, the, in his letter to Titus, he sets the stage for why he sent him to Crete. For this reason, Titus 1, verse 5, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking. That you should set in order the things that are lacking, because there is a proper order for things to be right. God has a way that he expects things to be. And Paul was sent, Paul sent Titus, to set those things in order, because they were lacking. There's a proper order in the family of God. This has more to do with authority. This has more to do with the man is here, the woman is here, the kids are here. A little bit a part of that, but it's really about there's a right way to do things. There's a right and godly way to do things. And it starts with leadership in the family and leadership in the congregation. And it is, it is male. It is male. But it has nothing to do, again, with our egos. It has to do with the mystery of Christ and the church. So that we can understand Christ as much as we can understand the bride by understanding the woman's place. We understand Christ by understanding what a proper man's role is. They go, and they go hand in hand. Again, these aren't my toxic words, but they are the mystery of Christ and the church. And we see here he starts this out by talking about the proper role. Then we go to verse 10. For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not, for the sake of dishonest gain. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men, who turn from the truth. You know what? God hates toxic masculinity too. We just need to know what it is. And this is toxic masculinity. This is evil men who, 
whether on purpose or unknowingly, come in and destroy either the family or the congregation through their actions. Rather than focus on why does God make men leaders, we see here God wants people to be better. And he set this part in order so that we can figure out and we have, from a godly perspective, what it means to be better men and better women. And it means, regardless of gender, not being insubordinate, not being idle idle talkers, not deceiving, not causing havoc in a congregation. This is the proper order that God sees here. And there's not a place in the house of God for that type of nonsense. So now, what is our obligation, regardless of status? If you've never been married, if you're divorced before you came to the faith, if you have never had, if your children aren't here, and any, whatever your status is, regardless of whether you have leadership in your home now or you don't have leadership at all in your home, it's just you. You have an obligation to be a godly man, and we see this here. As for you, verse chapter 2, verse 1, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine, that the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. You know, we won't focus on the women. Pastor Adrian did that eight weeks ago. Older men must set good examples of what it means to be a godly man. If you are older in age or older in years in the faith, you have an obligation in the household of God to set the example of what it means to be a godly man because people need to see these examples. What does it mean when we have a new person walk through the door and give his life to Christ? He has spent whatever years he has been spending out in this world being influenced by all this nonsense, and he comes here, What does he see? Does he see an example of a godly man, or does he see toxic masculinity in action? Regardless of your marital status, your family status, you have an obligation here to set the example for young brethren in the faith of what it means to be a godly man. Set that example. Be an example of being a godly man, regardless of your lot in life. If you you possess Y chromosomes, I can no longer say, if you have an M beside your gender on your driver's license. So I now need to say, if you have Y chromosomes, this helps define your place. You, at the very least, set a good example of what it means to be a godly man. For newcomers, for young people growing up in the faith, and you know what? For me, when I stumble and I lose my way, and I need to be reminded what it means to be a godly man. Verse 6. Then, as you're setting the example of what it means to be a godly man, help young men into adulthood. Likewise, verse 6, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. There's enough bad examples out there. Never be that bad example here. Be the example that is that light upon a hill that Israel was supposed to be. That, that shining light upon a hill, that this is, this is how God expected us to act. That's a fine example of a man. Son, watch him. Watch him. Be that man. In all things, verse 7, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, 
sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say to you. Be the man that no one has a bad word to say. That when they go to scripture, we all know you sin. We all know you stumble. You're not perfect yet. But be a man of integrity so that others can see that example. Let's go to first, coming down near the end, First Corinthians 16. Here's an example of different biblical versions giving different meanings to words. Even the New King James. I'm going to read it from the New King James first. If you have another version, you may see it differently, and we'll get to that. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, and be strong, and let all that you do be done with love. If you have the King James Version, it says this. Watch you, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, and let all things be done with charity. This word, quit you like men, rather than try and keep true to the text, They changed it to brave, which is true in some respects. But this quit you like men is one Greek word. It's one Greek verb. It is in the imperative, so we know that to be a command. And it means show yourself to be a man. So read it in that context. Watch. As Paul is coming down to the end of his letter to Corinth, and all this trouble that he has had to address in Corinth with the, the infighting, the not dealing with the sexual sin, not understanding the true meaning of the holy days, not understanding that we, we are gifted to serve each other and to build up the congregation. He concludes here and says, watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be a man and be strong. And let, in doing that, let all that you do be done with love. There's so many more scriptures we could go to. But I trust that the Bible is clear. It is, we, we have an important role to play as men. There is a place for men. There is a place for women. It, it has nothing to do with ego. It has nothing to do with my pride. It has nothing to do with who's in charge. It has to do with following God and understanding the mystery of Christ in the church. And as much as we need to understand the mystery of the church and what it means to be the bride because that's what we will be. We also need to understand a man's place. We need to understand what it means to be like Christ. Let's go back to Ephesians 5. Verse 32, this whole thing that God has got us into, when way back he created man, and out of him, before out of him, he said, it is not good that he's alone. You know what? This is an incomplete creation. I need to create woman, and I will do so by creating her out of a rib, out of his, out of, out of his side. And I will teach them to become one. 
and I will teach them to, to assume their duties as man and woman as I will teach them, and to be fruitful and multiply and raise families. And in doing so, take care of my creation. Everything we do revolves around those things. This is the great mystery of Christ in the church. What it means to be a godly woman and what it means to be a godly man is this great mystery of trying to figure out our place so that we can be first fruits in the kingdom of God. And this is all about unlocking the mystery of Christ and his role as the coming bridegroom. Let's go back. We just two more scriptures. John 17. How important is it to unlock this mystery of Jesus Christ and his role as bridegroom? John 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life. We know that Christ is praying in front of his disciples here at the end of the, the uh, Passover, New Testament Passover service. This is eternal life, he says to his father in front of his disciples that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is all about knowing God and Jesus Christ. So unlocking this mystery of Jesus Christ and who he is, of what it means to be like him, and his, amongst his many roles, his role as bridegroom, is what eternal life is based on. Because we read, to deny those roles, to not fulfill those roles, is to proclaim unbelief and to deny your faith. We read that earlier. So, this Jesus Christ, who is this Jesus Christ? Let's finish in Philippians 2. Does this sound toxic? When we understand the role of a man, and taking on the role of Jesus Christ, and taking on his characteristics, does this sound toxic? Verse 3 of Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only out for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, and came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Does this sound toxic? Does becoming like Christ sound something that should be avoided or something that as a woman, do you feel offended by this? If a man were to, be, to take on the full character of Jesus Christ and lead the way Christ led, is this offensive? This is not toxic. We've now covered the woman's place and a man's place from the pages of the Holy Scriptures. These two beings that God made to come together as one and form the foundational institution of the family, all pointing to the great mystery that is Christ and the church. Again, if our role is to oversee the grafting back in of Israel, when these, what we've been talking about, when they become physical kings and priests in the millennium, and we already having assumed our spiritual bodies and work alongside Jesus Christ and then help them receive the Gentiles and teach the Gentiles about God's way, we must get this right. We must figure out our role. We must teach our role. If we are to become kings and priests and to teach this, we need to figure it out. 
And we can't be afraid to be a man. And we can't be afraid to be a woman. We, and to do it in God's way. The answer to the world's problems is not for men to be less like men. Not for women to be less like women. But for each of us to become more holy, that is less toxic, and fulfill with God's help the roles he designed for each of us from creation. To all the men here, to all the men watching online, or that will be hearing this or watching this later, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, and act like men, and be strong, and let all that you do be done in love. I ask you to rise. We will close the live portion of our service with prayer. Our most holy, righteous, and perfect Father, and to you, Jesus Christ, our King, our Priest, and our soon-coming Bridegroom, we look to you as the example of how we should be. We thank you so very much for calling us out of this sick and perverted world. We, Why you chose us specifically, we don't know, but we are so grateful for it. We ask you to help us honor you and honor your sacrifice with you and Jesus Christ by assuming our roles the way you intended us to assume them, not to be sucked in by the adversary and how he is reconfiguring what it means to be a man or how it means to be a woman, but to stand up for you. and to, to we, we talk about what it means to stand up for you and what it means to, to stand up in the face of these things. Help us be men and help us, those who are women, to be godly women. Help us not to be afraid to assume our roles and to do so regardless of our lot in life, regardless of how much or how little we have, regardless of our, our our marital status here in this life, we all have a part to play in being and setting the example of what it means to be a godly man and a godly woman. We look to you for this. We ask for your blessing upon us as this world continues to devolve around us and come apart at the seams. Please give us the wherewithal and the character to stand up for you and to be the people you need us to be. Not to be less like what you intended so that we conform to what the world expects of us, but to be better, to become more holy, to be more like you. We ask all these things, and we dismiss these, these the live portion of our service. We ask to go with the brethren that are here with us online. We ask to be with the rest of our, our service here. We ask all this in Jesus Christ's most holy, righteous, and perfect name, looking to him as our bridegroom, and we cannot wait for him to come. In his name we pray. Amen. from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.